Hello, everybody. Today is February 2nd, 2024. I'm honored to have with me today my former student, Tom Vladek, who's a 2016 graduate of the Wharton School. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate it. Well, it's always good to talk to you and see you again. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I, you, I know you have a an affinity for math. That was one of your interests when you were at school, but tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So um, in undergrad, I was a math major. And then for about, I don't know, six or seven years after graduating, I had a career in climate change that was very interesting, although ultimately unfulfilling. And then I sold out, went to Wharton, and at Wharton, I got introduced to the wonderful world of marketing analytics. Um, Warden has this amazing marketing department and several of the professors are statisticians. And I just saw that world as being a place that I would really enjoy being in. In my second year, um, in a large part inspired by taking one of your classes, um, I started my first uh, company called Gradient Metrics, which does market research for brands and nonprofits. And, and tell then, us a uh, little bit about yeah. what does Gradient do and um, how were you able to start it while you were in school? Great question. Okay, so first answer, Gradient does complex market research projects for you know, large nonprofits um, that are interested in understanding how they can be more impactful um, and you know, brands that are looking to make decisions about their product, their pricing strategy, which consumers are going to set target, et cetera. Um, what makes us a little bit different is we specialize in discrete choice experiments and complex survey designs, things that I learned at Warden, actually. Um, and how I was able to get it started, I had a huge amount of help from Patty Williams and David Bell and Eric Bradlow, three Warden professors in the marketing okay. department that essentially helped me get my first clients. Um, and my second year of school, while everyone was sort of traveling um, all the time, I was doing consulting projects. And by the time I graduated in May, I had enough of a book of business for the rest of the year. And so I just decided not to go get a job. And then um, I actually think you were one of the, you advised me on this. You told me hire as soon as you can, because you got to rip the bandaid off. The first hire is the hardest. And so I pretty soon after graduated, graduating, made my first hire, um, and then tried to structure it as a business and not just a, you know, one person consulting shop. And over the years, it's become a, a small but uh, successful boutique market small, research agency. successful and vibrant business. And I'm glad I was thrilled when you were telling me in school that you're going to take the entrepreneurial route. But what does Gradient do in terms of its market research for big brands? Yeah, so a classic question that we would help answer is something like, hey, I want to design uh, a cable subscription pricing package, right? Um, I'm Verizon. Verizon is not a client, but you can imagine they could be asking this question. And I want to understand how to bundle various products and prices together in different packages, right? If I could include ESPN in your cable subscription, how much would that be worth extra to you? If I could include Fios as part of a cable deal, how much would that be worth it to you? Um, these are complex questions to answer because people don't typically tell you how much they're willing to pay. Um, 
it's hard to answer that question. So what you have to do is you have to give people choices and say, would you buy this or would you buy that? Would you buy A or would you buy B? Would you buy C or would you buy D? And from their choices in a survey-based environment, you can infer what they're willing to pay for each component. And then once you know that, you can actually assemble through optimization routines what the optimal set of packages, um, what the optimal set of packages would be to go to market with. That would be like a typical project for us. But now you mentioned optimization routines for people who didn't take uh, analytics courses. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So um, an optimization routine uh, generally is just you have a set of decision variables, right? So in this case, it would be, you know, what price do I offer? Let's just leave it there, right? And what you're trying to model is some outcome that could be revenue, it could be profit, it could be market share. And you have some model that explains how price relates to that outcome, whether it's profit, revenue, or market share. And this could be as simple as just like an Excel workbook where you have certain assumptions about um, if I price it at 100 bucks, you know, 10% of people will buy. If I price it at 80 bucks, 15% of people will buy, something like that. And what an optimization routine will just manipulate the decision variable to maximize the outcome. In the cases that we deal with, the number of decision variables might be very, very large, right? It might not just be price. It might be combinations of um, products that you might offer together, right? Uh, do I offer a sports package or an entertainment package? Or do I offer, you know, uh, free Wi-Fi or roaming data or whatever it might be? as part of the uh, bundle that you're offering. And so what an optimization routine will do is we'll search through all the possible combinations to find the one that maximizes your profit or your revenue or your market share or something else. Um, so what we specialize in doing is, you know, collecting the data um, that allows us to infer things like willingness to pay or affinity towards a brand or something like that, and then use that um, estimated data to uh, answer some kind of complex question for our clients. Like, now, what is how the price do you session? know? How do you know that you selected the right people for this survey? That is a great question. Very challenging. Um, so generally, what we will start by doing is discussing with the client what their target audience looks like. Um, but that assumes they know who their target audience is. That does assume that they know who their target audience is. Now, in most cases, um, companies have a pretty good sense of the demographic profile of their business or can easily get it, right? Because almost every um, company has email addresses associated with their customer base. And that is very easy to tie to third-party data um, providers that can enrich that with other information about where do they live? How old are they? What's their ethnicity? What's their income? Do they own a car? All of that. And so you can start there to build a demographic and um, other, you know, basically a demographic profile of the audience that you're trying to replicate via survey, right? And then the challenge is, okay, I know what target I'm trying to mimic then you actually have to go to a sample provider um, 
companies that essentially have lists of people that are willing to take surveys and say, hey, this is the audience I'm trying to replicate. Um, let's go you know, talk to as many people as it takes in order to get a sample that looks like this. Now, um, I re- if I remember my statistics courses, which were a long time ago, one number they said was you needed 70 people. Is that enough? Well, it it really is situationally dependent, right? Um, 70 people, I think, would almost never be enough. Um, I think you might need something on the order of 70 people if you care about maybe one statistic, right? Like what is their average willingness to pay for a pack of gum or something like that? Um, but what most of our clients care about is combinations of attributes, right? So you might care about, uh, you know, married parents with children. You might care about, uh, you know, dinks, double income, no kids. You might care about, uh, you know, people in college, right? And so there are typically, you know, sub-segments of people that you want to capture information on. Um, And when you're doing the kinds of exercises that I was talking about before, where you're trying to identify the range of products that you're that you want to offer by definition you have to know the distribution of attributes and willingnesses to pay in the population so you typically need substantially larger survey samples so how how large is that sample typically i will say that for us you know it ranges on the lower end to about a thousand. And then on the upper end, I mean, we've done projects where we've had to talk to more than 10,000 people in a survey, so but those 70, have been quite large. 70 is way too low. 70, I would say. Well, so, I mean, there are some cases where, you know, I think we did one project where we were trying to get some data on people that were acupuncture customers in New York City, right? Um, and that I think was on the range of like a hundred or so. Um, we've had some very specialized audiences that we've reached in the past that have been, you know, on the order of 70 or so, but those have been special cases where it's like a very, very niche market market or audience that we're trying to collect it on. Now, before they came out with the iPhone, and I'm just using that as an example, none of us knew that we really needed an iPhone. And now all That's of us, right. now all, most of us won't leave home without a smartphone. I'm using iPhone, but it should be a smartphone. How do you know that the people really know what they want and what they're willing to pay? That's a great question. And I would say that the answer to this, it depends on whether or not the product you are testing is one that is like a known commodity, right? So for something like a new piece of technology, let's take the Apple VR headsets for the moment, right? That's priced at 3,500 bucks. I think if you were to test the willingness to pay for a VR headset a year ago before Apple made the announcement, nobody would have said they were willing to pay $3,500. But now Apple has put this out, right? And they've shown how um, immersive and powerful this new technology could be. And a lot of people are going to be willing to pay that much money for it. And so for new technologies, this methodology is not appropriate, right? But for things that people already know and make decisions about, you know, and they're familiar with how they make decisions about it, even if they couldn't articulate the specific um, value functions they have in their head, then it's a lot more valid. So if you're talking about like 
would you buy a Toyota or a, over a Honda? Or how much more are you willing to pay for a Toyota over a Honda? At least for people that have, you know, are, you know, my age or older, they've bought a car a couple of times. They know how to think about buying a car. They know how to think about a cell phone plan. They know how to think about a TV plan. Those things people are, they understand how to make those decisions and they can do it in a lab. But I wouldn't recommend running a pricing experiment for something like a VR headset now, which is like the you know next generation of computing technology, because people don't know how they make the decisions there. They, that they're doing it for the first time now, in, in essence. Right now, for example, when Facebook came out, it was originally uh, targeted for college students. Now, a good number of people who use Facebook are seniors, someone over age 65. And so even though they have the product out there, this market segment, they may not know will be interested in it. How do you measure that? Well, so this is less of, I think, a survey type question, and it's more of a how technology diffuses and how network effects um, equilibrate over time. So in this particular case, there is a, like a, a faddish aspect to social networks where, you know, people pile in and pretty soon the next cool thing comes. And so people pile into that. And the only people remaining on the first network are sort of the older or less in touch culturally people. Like, so we saw it from Facebook to Instagram. Now we're seeing it from Instagram to TikTok. That's, I think, just a, more of a, a, certainly a harder to predict phenomenon and not one that I think you could predict with survey research, right? Um, survey research can help sort of delineate what the trends are, can tell you what's happening, but it can't really predict the future when it comes to technological trends. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to estimate the proportion of, you know, call it 21-year-olds, maybe right at that borderline that are spending more of their time on Instagram or TikTok, I mean, I can actually tell you right now, that's going to be TikTok, let's say, 30-year-olds, probably on the borderline. Um, surveys could tell you that, right? Because nobody has that data. Instagram has they, their data, TikTok has their data. But if you as a third party wanted to get a better sense for, you know, is my audience on this platform or on that platform, surveys would be a good uh, source of data for that. And you also hope that the people who they're giving you who are willing to take a survey are representative of the market. Because a lot of people don't want to take surveys. Yeah, that is uh, a really challenging problem. Um, one that is consistently fretted about by uh, market researchers and social scientists as well. Um, fortunately for the market research community, uh, academics also have a big interest in this, right? Because there's a whole fields of uh, academic research that also depend on survey data. And, you know, what they have found is, is that quite obviously there are segments of the population that are less willing to take surveys, right? Um, people that have, you know, generally higher income or have less time on their hands are generally not, not as willing to take surveys. But what they found is, is that once you control for those factors, there's not a huge systematic difference between people that take surveys and people that don't. Right. And so if you can adjust for the demographic factors of people, which does correlate with whether or not people take surveys, 
you can get a pretty good um, replication of, uh, you know, what the, you know, what the general public, whether or not they take surveys, would think about something. The bigger problem is, is that it's very hard to replicate the actual decision um, that you're trying to model in a survey environment, right? It's pen and paper, whereas when people actually make decisions, they're out in the real world. And that's the bigger problem is how to actually replicate the thing that you're trying to model. Well, it's interesting. And, you know, and I know they've had this issue with like political polls where for years, several years, the, 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 the predictions were, were wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, political polls, um, there's been a great study by a Columbia statistician, Andrew Gelman, on how wrong they generally are. And they're typically, uh, I forget exactly how what the breakdown is, but there's, I'm going to get the specific numbers wrong here. But on average, I think there's about two to three points of bias and a similar amount of variance, meaning that um, you can basically expect that polls are going to be off by four to five percent in an either direction in any given year. Right. And so the margin of errors of polls is about probably double what um, any given pollster will tell you. You know, they say. Uh, this poll has a margin of error plus minus 3%. It'd probably be better to think of it as plus minus 6%, right? Anytime they say the, the what the margin of error is, just double it as a good sort of like rule of thumb. Now, the question is like, how much does that matter, right? And so for uh, a political race, that matters a lot, right? Because- I mean, if the results are, so are 51 close. to 49. Exactly, Right. But in most commercial applications, they don't matter that much because what you're looking for are the things that sort of knock you over the head as insights, right? Because in the political environment, you know, 51 to 49, you really want to know if you're 51 or 49. Whereas if you're trying to make a decision about, you know, do I go to market or not, you know, and the and you're saying, well, the size of this segment is 10% or 12% of the population, that that's probably not going to make the difference, but knowing if it's 10 or 30 or 50% will. And so different applications have different standards for the error that you can tolerate. And politics, which is the most famous place where polls happen, happens to also be the place where the, you know, the tolerance for error is very much the smallest. But in most commercial applications, it's not nearly that big of a deal. All right. Well, that's it's it's interesting. I know we could talk about that all the time, all day long, for that matter. But you have another business, Recast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's related to Gradient. That's right. And so, I mean, basically, it was born out of Gradient, at least uh, from me. So I started this uh, with a co-founder, Michael Kaminsky, in 2018. Um, so Michael, at the time, was a head of data at Harry's. He had hired Gradient to do some work for him. Um, and we had sort of parallel experiences with this problem, which is called media mix modeling. And the core problem was uh, summarized in the famous Wanamaker quote, I know that half my advertising is wasted. The trouble is I just don't know which half. Recast, like the mission that we have is to tell you, our client, which half is wasted and which half is successful. Um, so media mix modeling uh, is not a new uh, industry, but we use new technology to do it. 
the core thing that media mix modeling does is it tells you the ROI, the return on investment of each of your marketing channels, which are things like Facebook, Google, YouTube, TV, billboards, direct mail, et cetera. Um, so our customers are advertisers that, you know, typically spend more than $25 million a year on advertising. Um, and they have a, you know, a lot of incentive to figure out which channels are working or which are not. Um, they give us their data. We have a very, very complex statistical model that estimates the ROI of each channel on each day and can help them do things like forecasting and optimization um, and budget planning. So that's that business. And that's where I spend uh, the vast majority of my time. So someone would come to you and um, now could it be different for competitors in the same industry? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we work with customers ranging from, you know, financial technology, pharmaceuticals, direct to consumer. Um, so we see a, a vast range of performances and media mixes and just everything is very unique to each client. But yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, take, uh, you know, apparel um, as one example, you know, you could have two companies that just have sort of different strategies, right? One might be direct to consumer, one might be in store, right? And I would expect the in store brand to have better radio advertising, for example, because when people are driving to, you know, Target or Walmart or whatever, they might be listening to the radio and that would be effective because it'll be right before you go in the store. Whereas if you're an online brand, that wouldn't be so effective, most likely. Um, and so, uh, it also just depends on, you know, the consumer that you're targeting and what um, media they spend more of their time on. And, you know, everything related to the creative, the value proposition of the brand, it all intersects. And so we would not generally expect them to be um, similar necessarily. Will there be geographic differences? For example, with the store in Seattle, Washington, have different expenditures than the same store in Atlanta, Georgia? So we we do geographic level modeling, but not generally down at the store level. Um, our approach is mainly designed for CMOs or maybe the head of performance marketing. CMO, so looking chief at marketing like, officers. That's right. Yeah. So we're generally providing like a highly aggregated top down view. So, you know, we're trying to answer the question, hey, we want to achieve 50 million in revenue in Q2. You know, how much do I need to spend and on which channels do I need to spend it? And when do I need to start ramping in order to achieve that goal? That would be like a very down the middle question for us. Um, we can do sort of more local planning, but the local planning for us is generally at the regional or maybe state level, not down to the store level. And what about are there seasonal differences? For example, back to school versus Christmas versus summer? Yes. Yeah, um, seasons are a part of every business, right? And we model that directly. So, you know, the canonical example that we give is like, let's say you sell sunscreen. You know, obviously you're going to sell more of it in the summer and less of it in the winter. Now, that poses a challenge because you're probably also going to advertise more in the summer. And for our model, that come that poses a difficult challenge. Like, are you selling more sunscreen simply because the sun is out or because you're advertising more? Those two things are happening at the same time. Fortunately, there are statistical techniques to sort of control for that um, and to 
back out the effect of just what is the seasonal effect, right? That is going to drive sales independent of any spend and what is the actual effect of your advertising. And then even more complex, is the advertising more effective because it is summer, right? Which is probably the most interesting question, um, which is also something that we attempt to answer. And it's interesting how you put put these items together. Is there anything else you think that you want to share with us about this? I mean, I think that, you know, media mix modeling is uh, something that's been around since the 60s or 70s. It was a forgotten art for, call it, the past 15 years because so much advertising moved um, online where it was very easy to track people, right? So instead of using this complex model to estimate, uh, you know, the effect of Facebook or of TV, you'd simply watch what people did online. Did they see that ad? Did they see this ad? And then did they buy my product? And then you could just sort of add things up, right? And you could say, well, they saw that ad and then they bought this thing. So I'm going to assign credit to that ad. That always had problems, but it was so um, alluring as a methodology because you could deterministically assign credit and estimate things like ROIs and CPAs. That world is going away. It's completely gone actually at this point um, in 2021. You know, Apple came out with iOS 14, which eliminated a lot of tracking abilities on, on their app. And um, new things are coming out that are privacy forward on the internet as well. And so now there's a huge amount of interest in media mix modeling. And fortunately, um, there are also, you know, really powerful new statistical techniques that are really perfect for this challenge. And so it's an exciting place to be. Um, and I think that any company that isn't using MMM yet is going to probably need to add it to their arsenal because the other methodologies to do um, media measurement are becoming much more challenging. Um, and also if you're a practitioner, it's a very exciting place to be because it's sort of like the problem is getting very big and the solutions are starting to be there. So that's all I would want to say. It sounds like we've come a long way where the stores used to have different types of coupons from different publications and they could see who was reading which publication based on the types of coupons they got. You know, it, it, we're actually still there. It's just a modern incantation of that. I mean, anytime you listen to a podcast and they have an ad, They'll say, you know, use code VLADIC215 or something when you check out. And the whole point of that discount is exactly the same thing. Just if you use that code, they know you came from the podcast. Um, so there are all sorts of uh, affiliate links and affiliate codes that do the same thing today. Um, they have their own challenges associated with them. But, you know, I, I think basically... Nobody at advertising ever invents anything new. It's always a remix of things that have been done in the past. And um, what we're doing today is, is sort of the same thing. It's just with new technology. Well, as always, Tom, it's always been very enlightening and interesting speaking with you. I noticed you said that you want to use the code VLADIC215, but I <laughs> asked to you about the code VLADIC2 if we could get you to come back again in the future for another podcast. Uh, anytime, anytime. I would be super happy to. And thank you very much. So the names of your companies are Gradient Metrics and Recast. That's right. That's right. I will thank you very much. Hello, this is Bob Chalfin. The second edition of my book, A Practical Guide to Buying a Business, is now available. This book, along with my book, A Practical Guide to Selling a Business, can be purchased on Amazon. 
All proceeds received from the sale of my books are donated to nonprofit organizations.